Well, thank you everyone for coming. We appreciate it. Uh, before we get started, I want to do two quick things, recognize two people. First off, where's Steve? Steve? Stev? Steve? Steve. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll get to him after. Uh, Vinny? Where's Vinny? So I want to say thank you to Vinny. Vinny just got back from a 10-month deployment in the Middle East, uh, serving our country. So if we could just give a round of applause for Vinny. So uh, for the format tonight, I'm going to start with just a couple of questions to, to introduce our panel members and, you know, kind of start the conversation, but it is Q&A. So uh, any questions anybody has, please just raise your hand and we'll, we'll get to you and we'll ask, you know, we'll just kind of keep it an open forum. Uh, all three of them are, are professionals in the area, they're professionals in their business. We have Vinny Catalano, who is an attorney phenomenal real estate attorney. He also is the number one landlord tenant attorney in the county. So any landlord tenant questions, he's the person that you want to talk to. We have Tom Truss from Truss Inspections. Uh, Tom is a phenomenal home inspector. He works with Donato. Donato is over there. And uh, we have Gavin Garay from Prime Lending. He's a uh, mortgage loan officer. So any types of, you know, yelling at him about the interest rates, you could do that afterwards. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to get started. We'll start, Vinny, with you. Um, obviously, landlord-tenant is a very hot topic for long-term uh, property owners. Uh, and, and obviously, New York State is not what we would call the most friendly landlord state. So instead of going through the eviction process, which I'm sure you talk at nauseam about, what are some of the things that a landlord can do to best pre-vet their tenants? So instead of going through an eviction, what are the things that they can do to vet them to make sure they don't even have to deal with that? You mean from the beginning? Yeah. You know, application process, all of that. Right. So, I mean, you want to have an application process. You're entitled to get a credit report. Um, the entire fee that you can charge for the application, the credit report, everything is $20. Doesn't cover it. But that's, that's the 2019 uh, laws that went into effect. So. Um, you want to have an application, you want to get a credit report, you cannot um, avail yourself anymore of any of the, um, uh, the list that used to go around, not so much here, but down in the city, where they would actually have lists that you could refer to to see what a person's rental history was like. You're not allowed to do that, you can't even do it independently, you're not supposed to look up the names of the peoples, to skip trace, to do a search on whether or not they've even been evicted before. So you're not supposed to do any of that stuff. You're supposed to vet them, you get the application, you can certainly ask for references, and it doesn't have to be their relatives, it can actually be their current landlord. You're allowed to call the landlord, talk to the landlord, get some information about that. Um, with credit reports, you're supposed to be able to run one unless they give you theirs. And as long as it's current, you have to accept it. Uh, so you're a little bit limited on what you can do. Uh, the best way to handle stuff like this, though, is to get the application and to contact the references. And again, I mean, if they give you their parents or they give you the person that they're staying with, uh, you know, for free because they haven't been living anywhere. Any, you know, I mean, that's those might be red flags, right? Why? Oh, we're just staying there for the time being. Well, gee, why? 
You mean because you got evicted from the last place and you don't want to tell us? You can, you can, you can ask questions. You know, you can, you can inquire, but you have to be a little bit careful, you know, how you do it. So you can't, you're not supposed to go online and look at their history, their, their judgment history. Um, you, can't, uh, you can't entirely base the, um, whether or not they're, they're a good applicant based solely upon their credit. Why? Suppose somebody comes to you and they have what's called a HAP voucher, right? Does everybody know what that is? It's, called a, it's short for a housing assistance payment voucher. And people can qualify that through what is called the, traditionally the Section 8 program. And these are people who generally are, uh, don't, don't have the necessary income to ordinarily qualify for enough rent payments on their own. So it's rental assistance. Well, you can't, you can't, now you're going to get somebody like that and, and suppose the rent is $1,500 a month, but they've got a HAP voucher that pays 1000 of that but their credit score is only 500. Now, ordinarily, you might use that 500 credit score as a basis for denying the application. But does that really make sense when two-thirds of the rent is being paid by a third party? So you have to be careful about having those kinds of clear lines when you talk about whether or not you should be um, granting the application or not. Yes? Criminal background, is that a protective class? No. It's not. Cool. Thank you, Vinny. Uh, shifting gears, Tom, for someone, there's a lot of investors in the room who maybe own multiple properties, right? So a lot of seasoned investors would say, why should I go get a home inspection? I've looked at 10, 20, 50, 100 houses. I know what I'm looking at. It, obviously, I'm sure you hear that from time to time. What are the reasons why someone should hire a home inspector, even if they've been through this you know, 25 times? It's a great question, because I probably would. I would probably hire somebody else out to do an inspection for me if I was emotionally attached to that property. If I'm emotionally attached to that property because the numbers work, I may start overlooking things, convincing myself to make that work for me. So having a secondary person, you know, non-biased do the inspection for you, you're going to get a piece of paper and it's, it's going to be black and white in front of you. You can't hide that stuff. So there is a lot of things that could come up that you're going to oversee. Even seasoned investors, you know, you miss things. You, you think that rot's not a big deal. Then all of a sudden that rot could turn into something more. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's more of a non-biased, you know, piece of paper. And at the end of the day, too, it's, a, you know, it's a capture in time of that day. Something could change along the way by the time you closed. And now you have a reference to look at that day to go back on that and maybe negotiate something else in the deal because something else happened. So it, it really is good to let your ego go off of it and just have you know, an inspection done so you got a, a, a picture of that time and day. And speaking from the agent side, if I'm the listing agent and this, they try to, they do like their own inspection, right? They just say, oh, we're gonna walk the property ourselves. You don't have any credibility to that inspection, right? You're unbiased, you have a license, you're obligated to, to be truthful. The buyer has an incentive to find something to try and renegotiate the price that may not actually be there. Absolutely, I mean, I always tell my clients too, I mean, every deal and every structured deal is different. 
you know, even if you could take, say, like, and I, I, this is what we try to do. We try to go through the house and give one good solid comment that you could use, even if it's, if, if it's, you know, for informational purposes only. You could take that one comment, and even if you spend 500 bucks on the inspection, ask for a $500 credit, and you just got a free inspection, and now you got a, you know, a picture of, of what that house was on that day that you could refer back to. And you know, at the worst case scenario, if something does pull up that's, that's major, where I've been in houses where contractors, you know, been in contracting for years, overlook something. You know, they walk past something. We have foot, footsteps that we go through that house and we follow. And even if we're talking to somebody, it may seem like we're kind of all over the place, but we're following our footsteps. So, you know, we know exactly what points to hit in that house, so we're not going to miss it. Somebody that doesn't do it every day, you know, they may start from the kitchen, work to the bathroom, go here, go there, and then totally miss a, a, a section of the house, which, you know, costs you a lot of money. And at the end of the day, when we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars into an investment property, a couple hundred dollars is a drop in the bucket, you know, for something to go wrong. No, that's a great point. And no, one, one other thing, and you know, septic inspections, you know, that's a big one. You know, if I knew what I knew now, I got no ego, you know, and somebody gave me the opportunity of going from a home inspection to a septic inspection, I would almost prefer to do that septic inspection over the home inspection. You, you can't see what's in the ground there, and that could cost you thousands of dollars. Yep, I think a lot of people have experienced that before. Yeah. So, so for the non-seasoned investors, Gavin, this one's for you. Um, people who don't own property, maybe they're looking to get into investment properties. What are some of the options that are out there for them? Because I think a lot of people, they hear investment real estate sounds like a great idea, but 25% down, you need $150,000, $200,000 to buy a property. What are some of the options that someone can go about for financing to actually buy their first investment? Yeah, so the big ones, you know, a lot of seasoned investors here have used are the FHA loan, which actually allows you to use three and a half percent down and buy a home that's two to four units. And then now, starting next month on November 18th, we'll have 5% down options on two to four units with conventional loans. And then for any veterans that are out there, like Vinny has actually leveraged, leveraged this to accumulate 10 units is the VA loan, which actually allows 0% down. So there's some really good low down payment options for first time home buyers and first time investors. So obviously those are owner occupant loans, um, but I think there's a, a lot of people hear those products and they think they're like for, first time home buyer and that's it, but they're not, right? No, they're not. So typically if you own a two unit home already, it's easy to get into another two unit home, easier to sell the story to the underwriter. Now in cases where, you're buy, where you already own a nice single family house, it might be harder to convince an underwriter that you wanna move into the city of Poughkeepsie into a two to four unit. So that's something you definitely want to keep in mind. So now we're going to shift to Q&A, and I saw a hand go up. So we'll let you start. If you could just stand up and say your name. Sure, it's Veronica McLaughlin. I'm not from New York, so New York law is a little bit newer for me. On that one, you said it had to be owner-occupied, but you mentioned two to four doors. So you are living in one of the two units. Is that correct? Like a duplex or a quad? Yeah, so you can live in one of the units, then rent out all the others. Okay. Yep. At the, yep, low down payment options. Yep. Thank you. 
And one thing I will point out from the agent side is the 5% down conventional product is phenomenal because a lot of agents, a lot of sellers have a lot of misnomers about FHA loans and a conventional product has less strict condition of property requirements. So that allows for, you know, some of the agents who will say, oh, I don't want to take FHA. Now you have a product that you can buy that home with and not have to worry about that. So PMI too, right? Yeah. Correct. It's not life of the loan. Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Other questions? I know someone's got one. Norm. Kevin, just a, with the interest rates getting up to 8%, it seems like the more you borrow, uh, the lower it drives your return because cap rates, you know, haven't hit yet 8%. So, you know, why do I want to, you know, you know, if, if you have the, the cash to put down, but you're better off putting down. 30% as opposed to 5%? So yeah, and the terms, you know, what we're seeing now on a specifically conventional investment loans is more points getting added onto the loans. Interest rate may not be climbing that high, but there are more points, so the cash to borrow um, goes up. And then what I would recommend is if you have it, if you can put more money down, you'll get a better interest rate, you'll get more favorable terms on that end, for sure. So what would be that percentage? Typically 70 or 30% down 70 LTV. Other questions? You're the bad guy in the room. Eight percent. Yeah, you've got the worst. You've got the worst. The worst one. Yep. Uh, Taylor Bird. Uh, so, so it's actually seventy percent LTV. So it's not actually thirty percent down if you're going after like a big multi-family. Conventional loans is going to be thirty percent down. They won't allow you to go off of that appraised amount. You could do a seller's concession, so you could borrow over the LTV. Okay. Okay, so if it's thirty percent down, does it matter? Like, are the underwriters going to care where that thirty percent down comes from? With conventional investment loans, yes. Now, if we're using DSER products and stuff, a lot of times they're they they don't care nearly as much, but the rates are typically a little bit worse. Okay, but so conventional though, they're not going to let me like raise money to use that for the thirty percent down. They would if you could source it, but it's it's going to be more difficult. Yeah. yeah, so you'd be better off going with a, a DSER loan or a commercial loan in that sense where they're not going to care. It's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. You could season the funds. Yeah. So typically they want to see 60 days, two months worth. So if you season them, if you get the funds 60 days in advance, then you can, you can do that. So basically when you start looking, deposit the funds. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So basically seasoning means putting the cash in your account prior to getting into the underwriting process of the mortgage. Cause if the underwriters see a large deposit into the account, they're going to flag it. And then they're not going to let you use that fund towards closing costs. Will a picture of money under my bed? <laughs> no. <laughs> Unfortunately not, but you Tony, what's your address? That's a really good question. <laughs> you could do bill of sale. That was pretty funny. Now, just to clarify for some of the newer people in the room, LTV is loan to value. So you see a lot of these things starting to get thrown around that maybe some other savvier people understand, but if you're brand new, it's, it's a little bit complex. Um, and the other thing too is I think, cause if I'm not mistaken, Gavin, conventional is only applicable for two to four units, right? So it has to be residential. Yes, it can. I mean, it can technically have a commercial space, but it has to be technically 51% reg residential. Can you purchase with a conventional loan in an LLC? So no, 
but if it's a Fannie Mae backed loan, so Fannie and Freddie are the two conventional, they fund all the conventional loans throughout the country for any lender. Um, Fannie Mae does not have a due on sale clause if you transfer it into an LLC, as long as you own the LLC after closing. And if you want to do that, talk to Vinny. Yes, talk to, talk to your attorney about doing it. So the 51% is uh, number of units to total? Square on? footage, I think. Yeah. Square, Square footage. footage. Yeah. And, okay. and FHA is going to be a little bit more lenient on the, two, on the commercial spaces being used, where conventional, in some instances, will actually require that the commercial space be rented by your own business. I just did one that you know, it was 50, 51% residential, and uh, it was, the whole downstairs was commercial, and because it was FHA, it was able to, you know, they were able to do a conventional. Tom, can you speak to the difference, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions amongst buyers, of what the inspection is for and what the appraisal is for? Because I think a lot of people think another inspector is going to come mm. out to the property on behalf of the bank. Yep. Can you kind of talk to, about that a little bit? Um, basically, your home inspector is for you. It's, we're going to dive a little bit more into this house, um, You know, give you a, a lot more uh, information for your, your purpose. Uh, the appraisal is more of, uh, say, if we're going with like a VA loan or something, there are certain requirements that they're going to be looking at to make sure uh, that it's there, handrails, lead paint, um, you know, stuff like that. But as far as a home inspection, we're going to be a lot more detailed into um, our reports. So when you get the reports, you can refer back to them. Yeah, I mean, the inspection's about condition, and appraisals about value. Yeah. Appraisals are done um, for the bank. The inspection is done for you, so you know what you're buying. Yeah. I just wanna, because Jake was instrumental in helping me. The one thing about some of the houses, I forget the exact number, Jake, if you remember, they go by the sales comparison approach, even if your income can justify it. Yep. Mm -hmm. yes. want to just touch base on that. Yeah, they always do. So for residential property, essentially, if you're four units or less with a conventional Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type of product, it doesn't matter if your property makes a million dollars a year. They're only going to value it based on what other houses in the area have appraised for. So as an, as an agent, when we value a listing, you know, you might have four Airbnbs that make five grand a month, but if it's a four unit in the city of Poughkeepsie, you're going to be limited to what other homes within a two or three mile radius have sold for in that vicinity. So it doesn't matter what the income is. It only matters what the other sales can justify. Donato, I believe you had a question. I had a question for Vinny. Vinny, what do you, what do you feel about inherited tenants um, taking over tenants that are already in place? Estoppel agreements? He's put yeah, so wine <laughs> for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, if you're going to if you're buying a property and you're buying it subject to the existing tenancies, you're going to want to see a couple of things. Right. First thing you want to see before you buy it is copy of the lease. You say, well, you know what? The lease expired They're just month. I don't care. Give me the expired lease. And one of the reasons you need to see that is because even though the lease is expired and now they're tenants on a month to month basis, they are still, and so are you, subject to the same terms and conditions of that now expired lease. You want to see the rent roll, right? 12, 12 months maybe, at least, maybe two years. You want to check and see what their payment history is. 
You want to see how much the security deposit is. Since 2019, one month is all you get. Um, you know, uh, you want to do an inspection of the unit and see what kind of condition it's in. Uh, you want a tenant estoppel certificate. Very, very important. A tenant estoppel certificate is something that the tenant signs. And the tenant signs that at or near the closing and says, I am unaware of any defenses to the lease. I'm unaware of any offsets to the lease. I haven't, I haven't prepaid my rent. Very important. Um, and this is how much I paid as a security deposit. So you know going in that you're not going to have to deal with any adverse situations prior to the date of transfer of the title. So, you know, I mean, it, it's challenging. And, and there are times when that kind of stuff is negotiated, right, where you may, you may see a bad tenant that you want to get rid of, and then you got to figure out how to close. You know, do you want to close with the tenant? Do you want the tenant out of there? Um, if you want a tenant out of there who has been there for more than two years, you are required to give them what's called a 90-day notice, which sometimes can be a problem with underwriting maybe, Gavin. I don't know. You know, because, I mean, I've, I've seen that before where it just takes too long to get them out and the rate starts to expire and all that other really great stuff. We can typically actually close as long as there is a letter in place or notice in place that says that the, they have to be out, I think, within two months of closing. Right. Which is also challenging because, you know, you're never getting them out within two months. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the bank's going to go and check that they're actually out, but... Well, That's the stipulation they so put in So here's place. the other piece of that. If you buy into a, a, a situation that is in progress, uh, you have to have, and you should have this anyway, what's called an assignment of leases and rents, where all the right title and interest of the prior landlord is assigned over to you. You should have that anyway. But you'll need that if, you, if they're in the middle of a landlord-tenant proceeding. And it gets tricky if the action's already commenced, not so tricky if the 90-day notice or whatever the notice is is out there and then you just take you take it from there if you're actually in the middle of the summary proceeding itself obviously the name of the petitioner is not you because you didn't own it when it got started and that can be a little interesting um, typically we just try to keep going and see what happens but, i can listen to him all day <laughs> <laughs> so the point of this was to get your mind thinking of all of the different questions they'll all be here after talk to them, approach them, ask some more questions. We're going to have three more people come up who are investors in the area. We'll do that in about five minutes. Take a quick break. I want to say thank you to all three of you and uh, thank you for coming.